welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 50. Synods, Tropes, Asses and Fools. So we've made it to 50 episodes, something of a milestone, although including the bonus episodes it's more like the 60th episode. But either way, it's great to have got this far. I just had to look back at my original plan for the podcast and saw that I'd expected to be quite a way further along by 50 episodes, somewhere in the middle of Shakespeare, in fact. Hopefully that just goes to prove how much there is to say about the history of theatre and how fascinating it all is. I've certainly been enjoying the experience of discovering all this lovely detail and taking my time over it. As you're still with me, I'm guessing that you're happy with the pace and depth of the podcast, but do let me know what you think. So, no special episode to mark the event, but here is episode 50. Let's carry on with the story of medieval theatre. Last time, I finished on the development of the trope, arguably the very beginning of formal medieval theatre. The question of whether the trope is really theatre, or in fact it can only be regarded as a dramatic embellishment to the mass, is an open one that will be discussed for a long time to come. For me, producing the last two episodes has proved quite a challenge because of the long timescale that's needed to be covered, with very few hard and fast dates to orientate the narrative around. This is quite different from the Roman period, where the documentation and dating of events is much more detailed, if not always entirely accurate. So, if you're feeling a little uncertain about the timeline and order of the developments, well, don't worry, this is something we have to live with, and I struggled with it myself. Not only are there very few precise records for the period, but even some of those conflict with each other. You'll remember that I mentioned the work on the use of singing that was produced by either Pope Gregory I or Pope Gregory II, and this is a great example of how sparse the records are at the time. These popes held office from about 540 to March 406, and from 699 to February 731 respectively, and it's not certain which of them issued the work that I mentioned. If we don't have any good records for people of the highest standing and positions, then what hope is there for records from lesser but still influential folk? Another problem is that the discussion has to cover a wide area. The British Isles, continental Europe, and with reference to the Byzantine Empire, and distinct influences from the Celtic Church. Trying to describe developments and trends for such a wide cultural area is challenging, but it's still legitimate, as the church and particularly the common monastic influence across the continent means that there was a large degree of cultural commonality, particularly in matters connected with the church. So just to be sure that we're all in the same place, what I've broadly covered so far is the development of Christianity and the church from being a cult in the early Roman Empire and then officially recognised under Constantine in 313. This during the period where theatre was curtailed in the empire and severely criticised by the church. Once officially recognised and free to worship in public, chanting and music became introduced into the services and by the 6th or 7th centuries we have the Pope Gregory's publishing instruction on rules around the use of singing. About the same time, there is some evidence of mimes being introduced into silent parts of the Mass, but no other form of drama is mentioned until the slight dramatisation of the Easter trope is introduced in the 10th century, which is then followed by dramatisation of the Christmas and Epiphany tropes in the same way. And this is how we got to the year 960, where we have documentation about how the tropes should be performed. I mentioned this fairly briefly last time as part of the timeline narrative, but because the document is preserved, there are some interesting details to pause over for longer now. We are in England. 
King Edgar, who was to become known as Edgar the Peaceable, has been on the throne for just a year. That throne was an unstable seat, but although he was only a teenager, Edgar was already showing abilities beyond his years that brought some much-needed stability to the kingdom. One of his first actions on succeeding his brother to the throne was to recall the exiled churchman Dunstan from Europe, restore his church appointments, which would eventually include becoming the Archbishop of Canterbury, and make him a key adviser. Dunstan, later to become a saint, was keen on the reform of the Benedictine order that was the most prolific religious order of the day. We shouldn't think of these monasteries as quiet places of religious contemplation. At that time, most monastic residents were secular and no more religious than most of the people of the time. The monasteries were often the hub of trading and farming activity and a monk could have a wife and family living with him. They were also known as some of the most prolific drinkers and partygoers of their time. From a religious point of view, the order was in great need of reform. Dunstan had allies in Oswald of Worcestershire and Ethelwald of Winchester two more church leaders who would become canonised in the Anglo-Saxon church. In 960, under Dunstan's guidance, the king called a synod or church council, which was led by these three men and included church representatives from much of Europe. For the next three years, they set about trying to settle various disputes that were present in the church at the time. The reforms discussed concerned the nature of monastic life and the behaviour of monks the selling of religious offices and confirming correct liturgical practice. It was in respect of these matters that the Synod addressed the Easter trope. By 970, the trope, still portraying the arrival of the women at the tomb of Christ, was now included as part of Matins on Easter Day, the third daily point of prayer which all monks and clergy participated in. Within the Synod, Ethelwald set out the rules for the Easter Day trope. The document is, of course, in Latin, but this is what was agreed. While the third lesson is being chanted, let four brethren vest themselves. Let one of these, vested in an alb, enter as though to take part in the service, and let him approach the sepulchre without attracting attention and sit there quietly with a palm in his hand. When the third response is chanted, let the remaining three brethren follow, vested in copes and bearing in their hands incense burners, and stepping directly as if those who seek something approach the sepulchre. These things are done in imitation of the angels sitting on the monument and the women with spices coming to anoint the body of Jesus. When, therefore, he who sits there beholds the three who have approached him like folk lost or seeking something, let him begin in a dulcet voice of medium pitch to sing quem quiritis. And when he has sung it to the end, let the three reply in unison, Jesu nasnarium. Let these three turn to the choir and say Alleluia. That said, let the one still sitting there, and as if calling them, say the anthem, Venite et Vedite locum. And saying this, let him rise and lift the veil, and show them the place bare of the cross, with only the cloths laid there that the cross was wrapped in. And when they have seen this, let them set down the incense burners in the same sepulchre, and take the cloth and hold it in the face of the clergy, and as if to demonstrate that the Lord has risen and is no longer wrapped therein, let them sing the anthem, Surexit de Dominus de Sepulcuro, and lay the cloth upon the altar. When the anthem is done, let the prior, sharing in their gladness at the triumph of our king, in that having vanquished death he rose again, begin the hymn, Te Deum Laudamus. And this begun, all the bells shall chime out together. 
This was a relatively minor output of the Synod, where the monastic reforms were the main order of business, but for something that is stage directions in all but name, to be set out in such a way and as part of what became an extremely influential synod is an important moment. This is official recognition of the place of performance in the Easter Day celebrations, the most important day in the church calendar. Now this is becoming more than just an add-on to the Mass. But part of the official celebrations, and perhaps even more significant, is the fact that the participants are playing roles is explicitly recognised. The document states, and stepping directly as if those who seek something approach the sepulchre, these things are done in imitation of the angels sitting in the monument and the women with spices coming to anoint the body of Jesus. Imitation it may be, but there's no attempt at realism. The participants are male priests or monks playing the three female Marys. They speak Latin and are dressed in robes familiar as the garments of priests, not the dress of common women. The trope clearly has two functions, one as part of an ornate, formal and stylized ritual, the other as a dramatic reenactment of real events, with the primary purpose reinforcing the mystical truth of those events, which are the pivotal point of Christian teaching. The declarations from the Synod of Winchester were broadly adopted across Europe, and amongst the upheaval of the significant monastic reforms, the recognition and formalisation of the Easter trope into the services then allowed for further developments. There's little detail available, but we can surmise that, firstly, additions to the original and specified ceremony are likely to have occurred, because of a desire for localisation to suit local culture. Secondly, the Easter trope was then able to be used as a model for commemoration of other church events. And thirdly, individuals could become involved in creating the events and develop the technical skills needed to present them. Put these elements together and it's possible for the presentation of the trope to become primarily an artistic concern rather than a religious one. By the 11th century, the presentation of the Easter trope was not only formalised through the dissemination of the Winchester Synod's documentation, but had expanded its reach into monastic and church settings throughout Europe as part of Benedictine reform. And it's around this time that the Christmas trope soon appears, presenting the nativity scene in place of the resurrection, and then the epiphany trope is developed, and tells of the arrival of the wise men from the east. This third trope was placed within the Mass at the point of delivering offerings, rather than as part of the Matins prayers. The texts used become longer than the original Easter trope and the directions around the performance become more detailed. These instructions, known as rubrics in the liturgical terminology, become more significant as the narrative becomes extended and the scope for deviation and additions becomes all the greater. The increasing importance in the nature of texts in tropes is recognised by a change in name that occurs in the 12th century. Originally, the trope is referred to as part of the officium, part of the order of service. But this is replaced by the term representatio, or representation. This suggests that the trope had developed into a distinct segment in the service, and its role was now more imitative than allegorical or ritualistic. We have something very close to a play within a service. And not long after that, the word ludus turns up again. You'll remember that this goes back to the Roman word used for any rules-based heightened form of imitation, from theatre to athletics, and here, in the 12th century, we find it again and used by the church to describe biblical narratives retold in a dramatic form. 
It was the 12 days of Christmas season that was the home for the next expansion of liturgical drama. The reasons for why the post-Christmas day period provided this setting are not clear. There are other important feast days that seem more obvious candidates, but it probably stemmed from the fact that the Christmas period of late December and early January was the part of the growing season where there was least work to be done, the northern days being very short and cold at that time of year. It was a period already peppered with important saints' days, over and above the celebration of Christmas itself. So there was possibly an inclination to make some of these days more special by the addition of unique dramatic interludes in the relevant services. Whatever the case, there was a clear development of drama associated with this period of the year in the late 11th and early 12th centuries. Few records of these dramas have survived, but those we have are concerned with the narrative of the slaughter of the innocents, commanded by King Herod, the life of Mary, mother of Jesus, and the story of St Nicholas. I think it's interesting that these pieces were already verging into stories that were expanded beyond their strict biblical mentions, suggesting a desire for creativity from quite an early point. The dramatic nature of Herod's command to kill all children under two years old to protect his throne perhaps makes it an obvious choice, and the cult of Mary had grown up quickly in the early church and retained enthusiastic support into and indeed throughout the medieval period and beyond. The Christian Christmas period was the latest incarnation of a long history of winter celebrations going back to the Roman Saturnalia festival and beyond. In medieval times there were already many entertainments associated with the church, many of which were long-standing and had been appropriated by the church and Christianised. I think these are worth looking at in relation to the church and secular theatre. They're not drama or theatre in the strictest sense, but they have dramatic elements and give an idea of the landscape of entertainment and amusements that was the background to theatre reappearing in Europe. They dispel the idea that the church was completely strict and controlling and I think show that it was recognised that some way of allowing people to let off steam and have some fun with the institutions that dominated their lives was needed in order to keep the peace and society ticking over without too much disruption. The tradition of the boy bishop is a good example. This involved choosing a boy to act as bishop in connection with the Feast of the Holy Innocents on December the 28th, and it was a widespread custom across Europe. In England, where the practice was most popular, a boy bishop was elected on December the 6th, the Feast of St Nicholas, who was the patron saint of children, and remained in office until the Feast of the Holy Innocents. The boy bishop was usually chosen from amongst the choir boys, but in some regions the choice was made from one of the children attending the school attached to the cathedral or monastery. Once selected, the boy would be dressed in full bishop's attire, including the symbolic mitre and crozier. He would then be paraded through the town and give blessings to gathered people. The procession ended at the cathedral, where the boy bishop and his colleagues, also taken from the choir or school, would take possession of the building and were permitted to perform all of the ceremonies and offices usually undertaken by the bishop and his staff, with the exception of the mass itself. Its interpretation and symbolism are uncertain, but the best accepted theory today is that it was a representation of the triumph of the child's innocence over the adult's tainted view of the world, with the boy bishop commonly delivering a sermon, giving his audience a different child's view perspective of religious matters. All of which, when you think about it, actually seems like quite an extraordinary thing in the context of a church that was authoritarian and striving for orthodoxy based on the Bible and centuries of theological thinking. Several ecclesiastical councils attempted to abolish the custom, but it took until 1431 and the Council of Basel to finally prohibit it. 
It was, however, too popular to be easily suppressed, and in England it wasn't abolished until 1542 by Henry VIII, but was then revived by Mary as she reinstated Catholic traditions, only to be finally banned by Elizabeth I. In more recent years, there have been revivals of the tradition in England and particularly in Burgos in Spain, where it remains a very popular ceremony. Perhaps the tradition that displays the most licence and foolishness is the Feast of Fools. This was celebrated all over Europe in the later Middle Ages, but was particularly popular in France. It originated on the Feast of the Circumcision, the 1st of January, and in the way it subverts the norms of church rule, it bears a lot of relationship to the boy-bishop tradition. Indeed, most of these traditions have that characteristic, as did the preceding Saturnalia festival and others. The unique point about the Feast of Fools is that it grew out of a special festival, the Festival of the Subdeacons, which from the 12th century onwards was associated with the 1st of January feast day. By then, various feast days were associated with the different strata of the clergy. Priests had a festival day on St John the Evangelist Day, the 27th of December, and deacons on St Stephen's Day, the 26th of December. Choristers and the boy mass servers had a festival associated with the 28th, Holy Innocence Day. So subdeacons, one of the lowest levels of ordained clergy, took a date during the Christmas period as their own. The date eventually became a day for all the lower clergy and was then adopted by the guilds that developed in later medieval period. The celebration involved variously the election of a false bishop or abbot, even on occasion a false pope and the reversal of roles within the clergy for the duration of the day. The 12th century theologian and church historian Jean Belleth drew a direct relationship between this festival and the Roman Saturnalia. He said, Now the licence which is then permitted is called Decembrane, because it was customary of old amongst the pagans that during this month slaves and serving maids should have some sort of liberty given to them and should be put upon an equality with their masters in celebrating a common festival the feast became particularly notorious for the extravagance that verged on the blasphemous, although it's questionable as to exactly how extensive any abuses really went beyond the locality of a particular parish or monastery. Bishop Robert Grosseteste of Lincoln, who served as bishop in the first half of the 13th century and was a respected reformer and theologian and philosopher in his day, took particular issue with the Feast of Fools and railed against the practice, but with little success at quashing the celebration. His reforming seal had maybe got the better of him in this case. In fact, there are very few mentions of the Feast of Fools in any church documentation. There's a reference from 1199 to the activities of a false bishop being curtailed to the evening vespers prayers only in the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, but not banned completely. There is a further reference from the Cathedral at Sens, also in France, and also placing restrictions on the practices in 1220, but again not banning the practice outright. This parodying of authority within a legitimate church service may have been something of a burlesque verging on the blasphemous, but the lack of evidence of any widespread abuses seems to suggest that mostly the church turned a blind eye to any excesses that the minor, and therefore mostly younger clergy, might have indulged in for this limited period. The Feast of Fools was banned by the Council of Basel in 1435, under threat of some very severe penalties. This was followed up by further decrees and a strongly worded document issued by the Theological Faculty of the University of Paris in 1444, suggesting that forcing the eradication of the practice was a slow process.
The Feast of Asses can be dated to the 11th century, but probably has its origins in earlier centuries, maybe as early as the 6th century. It was celebrated on the 14th of January, the feast day when the flight of Mary and Joseph and Jesus to Egypt to escape Herod's planned slaughter was remembered. But other donkey-related biblical stories were commemorated too. It survived until the mid-15th century, like the Feast of Fools, but was never considered as objectionable. The ceremony involved the parading of a donkey with a child through the town to the church, where the donkey would be stood at the altar steps. The priest would then give a sermon on the proof of the divinity of Christ, but significantly he would take on the role of Hebrew messianic prophets. This was close to a dramatic piece where the Jews were condemned by the words of their own prophets and the unbelieving Gentiles were addressed via the words of characters like Virgil and the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. In an 11th century version, the words of the old prophets are spoken as a dramatic dialogue and by a 13th century version held at Rouen in France, there are specified parts for 28 prophetic characters. And we have some more stage direction, which says that after the terse prayer, that's the 9 o'clock a.m. prayer, let the procession move to the church, in the centre of which let there be a furnace and an idol for the brethren to refuse to worship so an enactment related to the theme of the sermon. The procession included the characters of Moses, Amos, Isaiah, Aaron, Balaam and his ass, Zachary and Elizabeth, John the Baptist and Simeon. Three Gentile prophets were to sit opposite this group. The proceedings were conducted under the auspices of St Augustine and the presiding priest called on each of the prophets to testify to the birth of Christ as the predicted Messiah. This done, lines on the signs of the Day of Judgment were recited and all the prophets sung together a hymn in praise of the long-hoped-for Saviour. Mass immediately followed. It is noted in all of this that the part that pleased the congregation most was the role of Balaam and the Ass, hence the popular designation as the Feast of the Ass. In time, the part of Balaam was disassociated from this service and features as a play in its own right. In the Rouen version, two messengers are sent to fetch the prophet king, who features in the Old Testament Book of Numbers. He appears riding on a life-size wooden ass, controlled by someone hidden beneath the body of the animal. As the next instruction for the rider is to let him goad the ass with his spurs, we have perhaps an early example of the dedication of the stage manager. We will come across the role of the ass again as the religious plays develop, Perhaps it's the threat of the behaviour of the unpredictable ass against the expected script or the amusement of the effect of the wooden prop ass that makes it a perennially popular feature of the plays. But it is here, as a role within a stage sermon, that we see its first introduction. But this is the only example of a service of this nature incorporating not only a dramatised sermon but a real or prop animal in connection with the Feast of Asses. To stay in the realm of the Mass a little longer, by the 13th century there are further examples of the rubrics getting specific about costuming for the characters played as part of the services. From Lyon in France, there is an instruction that the prophet Isaiah should be bearded and dressed with a red stole hanging from his neck, and that Jeremiah should be similarly dressed but without the stole. Daniel, he of the lion's den, should be dressed in a gorgeous robe, and Moses should be bearded and carrying the tablets of the law. Lovely to hear of some costumes and props being used, and David should, of course, be dressed as a king, which presumably means dressed as whatever the good burghers of Lyon would recognise as the attire befitting a king. 
Perhaps most interestingly, Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist, is to be shown dressed as a woman, pregnant. So, for King David and Elizabeth, we clearly have characters not dressed in the vestments of priests and a hint of realism. I also like this reference to Balaam and his ass, also from the Leon rubric. The instruction says that, Here let come the angel with a sword. Balaam prods the ass, but it does not move, and he speaks angrily at it. A touch of realism that an ass owner in the congregation would certainly relate to. So the Christmas season had plenty of opportunity for a bit of fun, and a lot of it was aimed at and involved children and young adults. Some scholars have suggested that this implies that the aim was to keep idle hands and minds occupied while there was less work to be done in the depths of winter. Maybe that is so, and coupled with the long-standing celebration of midwinter festivals, we can see the development of traditions that we still know today. A rubric from northern France shows that in the 11th century there was some move towards individual characters, where the epiphany narrative was expanded to include not only Herod and the wise men who were given individual names, but a court official, a woman and a soldier. From the same period, documents from Dublin show that the imagery used was getting quite sophisticated. Here they are not just acting out events, but casting allusions to the martyrdom of Christ and the creation of his church. The rubric says... At the close of the third response with its verse and the Gloria, three people will advance clothed in surplices and with their hands covered with silk caps, as if they were the three Marys seeking Jesus, each one of them carrying a box in both hands, as if it were a cask of spices. The gifts of the three wise men are consciously and visually foreshadowing the embalming spices carried to the tomb by the three Marys, and priestly vestments, the surplus, become costumes, and the altar represents the tomb of Christ. Some at least of the congregation would have made these connections as they're reinforcing connections already made in the theology of the church, even where they're only expressed in the rubrics which were only seen by the priests, or as we might now dare to call them, the actors. In a rubric for the Feast of St Nicholas from Fleuret, again in France, we have the most explicit and complex example of a setting of multiple places within one presentation. The rubric explicitly mentions that three spaces are needed to represent three different locations. The document doesn't specify how this is to be achieved, but we can imagine some representative props placed at strategic and probably equidistant points in the central space between the nave and the chancel. One space was to show King Memorinus, from whom St Nicholas freed captives, another to represent the home city of the prisoners, and another to show the church of St Nicholas. The speculation is that a religious object was placed to represent the church, a canopy for the town and a throne for the seat of the king. Simple but effective representative scenery and props. Surely a presentation of this complexity means that those preparing and performing have to be concerned with specifically theatrical matters. Creation and placing of props, entrances, exits, sightlines and the like. Another of the more complex presentations is the Ludus Danielis, the play of Daniel, that originated in Beauvais, France, in the 12th century. The theatrical entrance of King Belshazzar is handled like a church procession, with specified accompanying music. A second procession follows for the entrance of the Queen, and a third for King Darius, each accompanied by 20 or 30 lines of sung praise. The rubric includes directions about the musicians that accompany the entrances. The description of the arrival of King Darius includes this direction. Let the drums sound, let the harpists pluck their strings, 
let the musician's instrument sound to herald his approach. Before the king reaches his throne, two men running ahead shall drive Belshazzar out as if killing him. Then, as King Darius sits in his majesty, the court shall exclaim, King, live for ever. The final exit of the characters is to the sung Te Deum, giving space for a final procession and bringing the congregation back into the usual order of the Mass. The rubric of the play of Daniel also tells us something about who authored liturgical plays like this. The opening lines mentioned that it was created by a young man, probably meaning a subdeacon, for the greater glory of God. The author took the basic biblical story of the prophecies of Daniel and embellished it, but closes the play with an angel explicitly linking the prophecy to the birth of Christ. Clearly, this was designed as a precursor to the Christmas nativity tale. The most striking features of these musical liturgical dramas are their requirements for multiple locations to be represented, the inclusion of specific characters, some of whom are extra-biblical, and their lengthened narrative scope. The sung verse text was in Latin, but there is occasional and surprising use of the vernacular. They also feature non-biblical characters, often devils and other servants of Satan who cart off unfortunates to hell. A 12th century rubric from Bavaria in modern-day Germany, concerned with a play about the arrival of the Antichrist, includes careful stage directions on the violence to be used by those playing servants of the devil. It's the introduction of individual characters and particularly the non-biblical and evil characters that started to cause a reaction against church drama. The problem was that these characters were more enjoyable to play and more fun for the congregation than the pious and serious biblical and Christian characters. As we still know today, it's often the baddie that gets the best lines and the best response from the audience. I think we see exactly the same thing happening here, and one can imagine the shock when church leaders start to see their congregation enjoying the representation of evil, and in the church setting at that. The intention is always good. God's grace must be glorified by contrast with the evil of non-believers. The pious Christian has to remain calm and staid in the face of the ranting pagan king who's about to put him to death, but that doesn't make the good person an interesting or enjoyable character to watch. By the end of the 12th century, the use of dramatic art had established itself within the church services used for high and holy days, but it had also begun to become too freewheeling for the likes of many in the church. For them, the dramas were beginning to take up too much time and detract from the serious devotional nature of the liturgy. The plays were, to their eyes, entertainment. The desire for elements such as realism and spectacle didn't sit well in a liturgical framework. And in this respect, church-based drama could only ever go so far before there was a backlash. The entertainment value and the non-Christian emotions on display became an embarrassment to the authorities, a fact only amplified when we remember that the performers were members of the clergy. Later reformers would deal with this, and it meant that the period of the late 12th and early 13th centuries were the high point of liturgical church-based drama. It was a form of drama that was a seed for the future, but also a form in its own right, whose purpose was praise and thanksgiving, an offering to God made in poetry, song and mime. Next time, we follow the theatre as it finally moves out of the church. It takes a shift of church theology and for a pope to introduce a new holy day to give it the start it needed, but very quickly the Corpus Christi plays arrive with a religious subject but with a much more secular outlook. 
In the meantime, you know where we are on Facebook, Twitter, Patreon and the World Wide Web. Just search for THOETP and find us and join us in whatever your social media of choice is. And if you have any questions, comments or concerns in the meantime, you can always contact me by email on THOETP at gmail.com or via Twitter at THOETP. (laughs) 